Welcome to Matthew Felix, the radio episodes, words, and images. I'm Matthew Felix, author of the novel A Voice Beyond Reason and the travel story collection With Open Arms, short stories of misadventures in Morocco. In February 2018, what is now my Matthew Felix On Air video podcast began as an internet radio program in downtown San Francisco. The radio episodes, Words and Images podcast, feature segments from that radio show, in which I converse with writers, photographers, filmmakers, and more. I hope you like the show. And don't forget to check out the current incarnation, Matthew Felix On Air, available here, as well as on Facebook and YouTube. Thanks for listening, and talk soon. That was Hall & Oates with You Make My Dreams Come True. And my next guest has worked with not only Hall & Oates, but many other top acts, including Tears for Fears, who not coincidentally we heard earlier in the show, System of a Down, Michael McDonald, Nick Jonas, and even occasional crooner Barack Obama. Oddly enough, that makes Jesper my second guest on today's show to have worked with the former U.S. president. And I think they both I think they both even been in the White House. But uh, anyway, Jesper Luth moved to the United States from Denmark via Spain and Norway as a young child. He has since lived in Rhode Island, New Jersey, New York, North Carolina, Alabama, Tennessee, back to Europe to live in the U.K. for a while. And hopefully last, but certainly not least, he has long since put down some some sort of seemingly enduring roots here in Northern California, where he has now lived for many years. When he's not working, Jesper is an avid hiker, has a regular meditation practice, and believe it or not, likes to travel for fun, despite constantly being on the road for work. Welcome, Jesper. Thank you. Nice fade, by the way, on the music. That was... Nice fade on the music? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty technically savvy here. Yeah, I've, I've learned a lot in my... Uh, 10 episodes or nine episodes you could come on the road yeah yeah well as luck would have it i may need a job soon so yeah we'll talk <laughs> about that afterwards uh so you did not start your life in the united states nope when and why did you come to the u.s uh, it was my my parents my father my stepfather was a like sort of an inventor uh in graphic arts machines and stuff like that and quite kooky um, quite kooky yeah, yeah. I mean, he would show up at like conventions and stuff like that in a pair of uh, like a short sleeve shirt with suspenders, jeans. Uh, he'd find a rope for a belt because he'd lose his belt and a rope. wear sandals. And, so very you know, practical. It was very practical. Not but, necessarily fashionable, but very no, functional. No, but he, he was very well renowned in, in the industry. And at one point actually had the world's smallest graphic design machine like for, you know, for print and so forth. And um, the Japanese obviously within a few months figured it out and beat him to it. But th- that oh. was the kind of style. And so... Uh, he decided to start a company in Spain, and uh, so my mother uh, was his secretary and started having a, a little fun, and so off they went. Off they went to Spain. To Spain and took the kids, my yeah. brother and myself. Yeah, and but that didn't last very long. Uh, did it, it? it lasted, uh, let's see, we were in Spain for four years, and oh, then four Norway years. for okay. a year, six, so probably about eight years. Okay. Yeah. Eight years in Spain? Or no, you mean so four years Norway. in Spain, yeah. a year in Norway, then we moved back to Denmark for one year, and uh-huh. then we went to America. Interesting. Um, Did you learn Spanish? Yeah. Um, I went to an English school uh, in Spain, uh, yeah. but obviously they taught Spanish as well. So within three months, as you do as a kid, you learn the so language So how old were you? Yeah. How old were you when you were there then? Uh, it was pretty early. Between, it was like seven to ten, so like six and a half to ten and a half, something like that. Seven, six to ten, I guess, yeah, would probably yeah, be the yeah. rough estimate. Interesting. All right. Yeah. So a very interesting background, yeah. but you ended up here. Yep. We're glad to have you. Thank you. Uh, because how old were you then when you did end up here? Uh, so that was in 1981. So I would have been 12. Right. So yeah. basically your formative yeah. teenage years and all of that was, we're, was we're here. We're in America. Absolutely. Yeah. 
So speaking of an early age then, mm. it wasn't much long after that that you actually started your career. That's right. Ironically. So how did you start your career and how old were you when you actually got started? Uh, so I was about 15. Um, it was really my mother's fault. Uh, we lived in New Jersey at the time. Um, and uh, basically she worked at this hotel in Persephone. And uh, what they did is they did like, um, uh, like they had like casino type acts and stuff like that. And she, she works as a, as a uh, accountant there. And somehow she found out that, you know, they need a stagehands. And she said, you know, 19, what would have been like 84 or something like that. I said, do you want to make $5 an hour? Oh, nice. It, exactly. You yeah. know, at that age, you know, do you want to That's be more a than my weekly allowance. <laughs> exactly. I'm I was there. Like, do you want to be a stage? I'm like, what's that? She says, well, you just help them set up the gear for the show. I'm like, well, okay, sure. Why not? And I showed up and it was like the angels they sang. I mean, all of a sudden there's speakers and lighting and trusses and... You know, and CDs had just started coming out, and I'll never forget the, the first time I heard, um, um, what was it, um, Money Ain't For Nothing. Uh-huh, And Dire just coming Straits. through, yeah, coming through that PA with just that clear sound, large speakers, and I was hooked. Um, and so, but tell me a little, because I'm, I'm curious. It's interesting. I'm always sort of envious of people. I mean, I did start writing at an early age, but then I got distracted, and it's mm-hmm. not as if I knew that that's what I, I mean, I think in the, in my, in the, in the back of my head, I actually did know, yeah. but I didn't necessarily recognize it. So I'm always sort of envious of people who, from the get-go, they're just, they have that clarity on what they oh, want to do with their I, lives. I know the percentage of that is very, very, right. very small. And right. I'm very grateful. So tell me a little bit more about, so you go and you're just schlepping stuff around this stage and yet yeah. you know this is where you want to be. It was just the excitement of sort of like, it's, it's like a quick result, you know, because you know that you start in the morning, by the end of the day, by showtime, you have to be ready, and there's going to be a show, and then it's done. You move on. Yeah. And that, to me, just excited me, and I think it was also that bit of that nomadic kind of experience in that. Um, you know, a few years later, I started working as a stagehand um, at another gig as well. It was, uh, we'd move up to New York State at that point. It was the Mid-Hudson Civic Center in Poughkeepsie. Okay. And it was Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden. Uh, and I've been called in just to help tear down the show, you know, uh, as a, as a stagehand. And yeah. I just remember standing outside the back door, again, I think it was probably like 1986 or 87, standing outside the back door. And I just remember seeing the tour buses. And I uh-huh. just, it was, it was literally sex, drugs, and rock and roll going yeah. on. You know, that was the height of it. Yeah. And I, I was just blown away by the whole experience of it, you know. You said, um, I'm home. I'm home. And yeah. then I remember a few years later, I was still working as a stagehand. Um, I just remember seeing, working in, a, in another gig. And I just remember the tour buses after the show was over and the, we finished taking all the gear away and stuff like that. The trucks got loaded. And I just remember the touring guys just got on that bus and they just went off. And to me, that was just like, wow, where are and they going? And you said, I want to be on one of those I buses. I want to be on one of those buses. Absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. All right. That's, that's awesome. But I mean, I will say that in, in that time, um, my mother was always like, you will go to college. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I got I to gotta figure that out. Um, and so I really did get a big affinity for lighting. Uh, that, that sort of, to me. Just, so you went to school for lighting is what I you're did. saying? Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. So about um, in high school. I actually took some classes at the local community college. In, oh, I was going to say they yeah. didn't have lighting classes in high school. No, it was like, it was like stage did. lighting classes and stuff like that. As, I guess I was still in high school and I just started taking the classes there. Right. Um, and I just fell in love with the, the crowd, the theater and everything else. To me, it was exciting. You know, there, there's a certain connection there because I think it is a very emotional place as well. Mm-hmm. So people do get those connections. Right. Um, so I did that for a couple of years. And then uh, there was one college that uh, that I wanted to go to. And the way I found out about that was I was on a after after school bus um 
I was driving at home on the bus, and it was just me and the driver. And the driver said, so what are you doing after school? I said, oh, I'm just working on some shows and stuff like that. And she goes, oh, uh, my son got into that. He went to a school called North Carolina School of the Arts, and he's on the road with Bruce Springsteen now. I was like, oh, my God. Really? <laughs> so another just sort of divine, Connect, total, synchronous, total. like this yep. is meant to be. Yeah. Absolutely. That is crazy. At that point, it's like, I'm only going to this school. I don't care what it takes, but I'm going to go to this school. Right, right. And um, my mother was like, well, you should probably apply to a couple of others just, just in, in case, case you get in. And I was like, yeah, I know, I know, I will. And so I was like, oh, I went but for MIT. Didn't. Oh, you, you know, did? You yeah, applied MIT, to MIT, of course, uh-huh. sure. You know, I uh-huh. have like a C minus average in high right. school. Of course, I'll get Fingers in there. crossed. Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Maybe they, maybe they have a Dane quotient. They, they, they just know. never know, right? Yeah. That theater department, MIT is amazing. Yeah, you know? maybe no one applied that year. That's right. That's right. So Applied to MIT. MIT. So okay, nice. they put me on the waiting list at that at North Carolina School of the Arts. Oh, I thought you were going to say no. at MIT. <laughs> I thought, wow, that's yeah. even more ironic. Not a he chance. actually got waitlisted yeah. at yeah. MIT after all that. Okay, so they put you on for yeah. this North Carolina School of the Arts. Yeah, it is. yeah. Uh, you were waitlisted, and it was a school of like uh, about 750 students um, from eighth grade uh, to graduate school, and it was oh wow, yeah, it was really small. But uh, it was an amazing experience. I had so much. So did fun. you have to wait a year, or you just got in that same no, year? No. So you what happened was people... I was on the waiting list, yeah. and literally somebody decided not to go after all, and I got the in. Perfect. And somewhere there's still a cassette tape with the dean saying, "We'd like to welcome Jasper Luth." <laughs> what do you mean a cassette tape? Like on your voicemail? Uh, voicemail. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> okay, that's funny. Well, <laughs> next time you'll have to bring that cassette right. tape, and we'll we'll share that history. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's fast forward a little mm-hmm. bit. I love all that. I I didn't. Mm-hmm. That's. Again, that's just so fascinating. And then the Bruce Springsteen bus driver yeah. thing and then getting into the school and just knowing exactly where you wanted to go. That's yep. that's great. Um, but so today you are production manager, mm-hmm. but we're going to get to that a little later. So let's continue this sort of more or less chronological progression here, because most of your career prior to becoming the production manager was spent as production designer, mm-hmm. at least after um, after you moved on from because presumably once you did you go to school for lighting or you I go did, to I school, school for, yeah, I have a. Uh, a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Lighting Design. In Lighting specifically, yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so, but let's talk then a little bit mm-hmm. about production design. Sure. Kind of about the, the art of it and the, the practice of it. So, and you kind of just touched on this a second ago. So as concert goers, I mean, you were talking more behind the scenes, but as concert goers, we go to see the artists, but so much of the spectacle of coming away from a show blown away and inspired and just pumped up is the stage show, yeah. right? And the lighting and the video and the effects. Well, yes and no. Yeah. That, that's an interesting point because okay. I, I think, you know, as, as time has moved forward, I mean, you could take acts like Pink Floyd, mm-hmm. you know, they rely heavily on that, right. uh, on that kind of production aspect. I mean, their songs are good. Um, but the production aspects, it's, it's what we've come to know. That is their brand. Right. But you could take somebody else. Um, Ed Sheeran stands on stage now just Jimmy Hendrix. Places. Mm-hmm. No stage show whatsoever. Really? Absolutely. But yeah. he just made the show come alive because of, you know. His talent. Talent. And presence. Yeah, and certainly. all of that. Yeah. Certainly. So there, I think there are different, different levels of that for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I agree with you yeah. on that. But like, if I'm going to go see Madonna or mm-hmm. I'm going to go see, like you said, yeah. Pink Floyd, if I'm going to go, those acts There's that an we expectation. do expect yeah. that from, That's right. that is part of the experience. That's where right. We're just going to come back and we're like, oh my God, that... The music was fantastic, mm-hmm. hopefully. The talent was fantastic, hopefully. And so was that stage show. Yeah. And that presumably is where you come in. Certainly. Um, even if it is just one of these these other acts that are more simple, you're mm-hmm. still there to make sure the lighting's right sure. and all that. So getting back to my initial question here, where I was going with this is, so production design, when we say production design, are we specifically talking about the lighting, the video, yes. that aspect That's of things, right? right? Yep. Uh, what about the sets and things like that? Same is that thing. also? Okay, yep. so it is sort of... Yeah, I mean... 
There's so many different levels of it. Um, you could have someone who's a production designer, um, and then there's a staff below that production designer who is, you know, the video the content designer for the video, for example. Because um, most tours, you're going to have custom content. Sure. Um, you've got the lighting design. Uh, so again, the production designer will probably say, you know, these are the kind of lights that we want. This is where they're going to go. You have somebody else taking that on and in- incorporating that into the rig, you okay. know, as to how it's going to look and where it's going to lay and so forth. So take me through sort of uh, step by step. Sure. Let's say I am Pink Floyd mm-hmm. and I have uh, just said, hey, Jesper, we want you to be our production designer. So what's it pay? Uh, a lot, okay, because we're Pink Floyd, okay, and we have lots of money. Great. And if if our comp- if our if our record company doesn't want to pay, it doesn't matter because we've been at this for so long, we're so wealthy, right? That we'll just pay you, right? Uh, but do I get the masseuse too? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. You Great. get two. Oh really? You get two. So that if oh. you tire one out, then you've got another one who's oh, waiting I'm in set. the wings. Okay, you're set. But um. What? How much artistic license are you? Well, first of all, what's what's the process? You sit down and I say I'm Pink Floyd, and I mm-hmm. say I want something really dramatic, or I want something really fun, or I want what's the kind of the process? Well, it depends. For, it depends on the artist. Some artists want nothing to do with it okay. and just trust that everything is going to be fine. Others really? are down to the T of like you know, like Madonna is is known to be someone who's very very exact and because she's they got want. such ornate, elaborate shows. Absolutely, yeah. And it's just the the person as to the personality, how much involvement they want to have mm-hmm. plays a big role. What's your preference? Um, as a designer. I like, to, I like to find the middle ground, to be honest, because I, it's nice to have some kind of guidance as to what they're looking for. Otherwise, you're kind of shooting in the dark on like, it's, 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 there are a number of artists who are like, you know, they they can tell you what they don't want, mm. but, you know, it, that doesn't help as much because then you're just going like, okay, do you like this? No. Do you like this? Do you like this? You know, as opposed to somebody goes, this is the direction, this is what I want and so forth. This is how exactly I want it to be. You go, okay, I have a framework that I can go with. Mm-hmm. you know, in that direction. So I, I think that plays a big role. Yeah. Um, but generally the, the process would be, um, you know, initial conversation with, with the, with the artist, uh, you know, obviously research them as well to see sort of what kind of thing the music is about, what, um, what subject matter that they may have. Mm. If they've come out with a new album, you know, what is that album signifying? What are they trying to say on the album? Is there artwork on the album that needs to be incorporated into the design? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that plays a big role. Yeah. Um, so you really are doing your research, though. And oh, sure. You really are trying to make sure it's a reflection oh, of, very much so. of the music. For sure. Of their, right. Mm-hmm. And also of the artist. Yeah. Um, once you get past that point, then you start doing renderings. What are, uh, like sketches or sketches, you know, and I mean, with the technology now, you know, with the computer drafting programs and so forth, the animation software and stuff like that, you know, uh, the big presentations uh, play a big role. Um, the big presentations to the artist or you to, mean the artist. Goes to the artist? Yes, and you to, this is what it's going to look like. What do you think of this? Do you like this idea? You know, and then they will come back and start giving you more insight and stuff like that. Now, you don't necessarily want to go too heavy on the artwork right off the beginning because you don't want to get them locked in right off because they go, they might go, this is absolutely horrible. Now, all of a sudden, you're having to start over again with a whole other concept. So it's iterative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you go past that point. Um, then you have the conversations back and forth. Yes, I like it. No, I don't. Yep, great. This is wonderful. Once you get that approval, then you get into the uh, drawing process of more technical aspects. You know, now you have to go, okay, what kind of tools, i.e. lights and video, do I need to, to make this production? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, And how much of this, sorry if I can just mm-hmm. interject here, how much of this is 
as the production designer, are you this technical person? Are you actually doing these renderings? Are you actually are you working with a bunch of other I have, people yeah. as well? Some some you people some that, designers don't. Your... Some some designers some designers have a staff. Uh huh. Others depending on the size of the production. Yeah. You know. But you're familiar with all of this software we're talking about and all of these. Yeah, yeah. there's a program called Vectorworks. uh, It's probably the the most popular one in the arts field. And then uh, AutoCAD is right in there as well. And then some people take it on to other rendering programs as well after that too. Okay. Uh, once they've drawn it, um, they take it to another to another stage of that. Okay, and so now you've done the renderings. Mm-hmm. You're you're trying to figure out what lighting we need, mm-hmm. what other what, what types of fixtures, fixtures lighting fixtures, yeah. and where they're going to hang, and so forth. And you start to put that in. That then um, that's where the uh, you know production manager's been playing along as well because they sort of become a little bit of a. Uh, some artists don't want to talk to the designer. Uh, so there's someone like a production manager that will become sort of like, I mean, they'll have a conversation and stuff like that. But once the information starts going back and forth, then the production manager deals with the designer. Right. The artist doesn't want to get involved in the exactly. nitty gritty back exactly. and forth. Yeah. They, exactly. yeah. So how often, and we might have to come back. I realize I might be kind of cutting off the whole process, but I'm curious how often, I guess maybe this does make sense to include it here, but so you're going through this this iterative process. You've got your vision. You're you're refining it with mm-hmm. the artist or with the production manager, um, whichever parties are actually actively involved in the, in the process. How often do you encounter requests that you don't know how to implement, sort of technically? Does that does that happen? So let's say Madonna again, mm-hmm. because she's kind of the front runner, I think, insofar as pushing the boundaries mm-hmm. of. I want to have three things in my stage that come up from below, and I want to have. So does that happen very often, or? Are there enough parameters that there's? You already kind of know the limits of what it, you're going really to do. It really comes down to money. Yeah, a, a big part of it is money because uh-huh. there are a number of companies out there that specialize in, especially that kind of stuff. Whether it's you know flying an artist through the air or right. making them pop up from you know there's senior companies that work with that kind of thing mm-hmm. that you uh, you hire on. Yeah. So how much does budget then come into play? I mean, I guess you start. What's what are the numbers I've got to work with? That's probably well, defining. That comes out to the whole production manager side of things as well. Is yeah. but you know the, the you're going to have a business manager who's going to tell you sort of you know uh, who knows the budget and so forth. As a production manager, you know once you find out what the design fees are, the you know the design costs, the the cost of putting the gear on the road, the cost of production, the cost of rehearsals, and all that other stuff, you know. Once you put that in there, you then put it into the business management, and they will look at that and go, "Dude, you are freaking dreaming. There is no way this is going to happen." I go, right. "This is great. You know, right. sure, we can make this work. You right. know, and so forth." You take it from there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how long is the the average sort of time then that this this process takes between? Because now we've identified the equipment we need. We mm-hmm. have a, is that kind of the final, and then we just actually go do it? Or are there more steps there before we? Well, so now once you figured out the design, yeah, now it's on to dealing with. Um, whether you decide that you want to go with just specific vendors, because mm-hmm. there's got to be a light, you no, know, you don't want to buy all that gear. That gets expensive, sure. right? Custom scenery, you have to buy, but things like lighting and audio and video, you you rent that. They send out a crew that goes with it, with the gear and so forth, that are responsible for setting it up, maintaining it, tearing mm-hmm. it down. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point in time, uh, you, hmm, what's the best way to 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 come to come into this? Sorry. Um, you basically take it from, from that point that, let's just say that you've chosen the vendors, sure. right? The, the prices have come back and said, this is what it's going to cost. They're happy with it. Yep. Then there, it's now at that point, you all work together, the production, the design, and the vendors work together to figure out how to ma- manipulate and make this work, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. 
And that, that process takes some time sometimes because especially if there's a lot of custom stuff like custom scenery or, you know, specific type of rigging and so forth that needs to be incorporated. So what would like the average timeline be? Six months? Or um, from the design, probably about four months. Four months. Four to six, yeah, about four to six months, depending on how intense it is. And then you start getting into, you know, once you get through the numbers and stuff, and then you get into a point where the system gets prepped. And if it's a large-scale tour, you're going to put it into some kind of a venue, whether it's a very large warehouse that has, you know, a way to handle a lot of weight in the ceiling. They've got rehearsal spaces. You can go to arenas and hang it there as well. And um, when you say hang, that's basically setting it up for rehearsals. Yes, exactly. Put the, yeah, at that point in time. Making sure it works. Yes. Now, some people, they just go virtual first, and they have it, you know, in what's called WYSIWYG, and literally they're programming uh, the system What you see virtually. is what you get. What's that? Is WYSIWYG what you see what is what you get? I guess I so. Yeah, I never yeah. thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's in WYSIWYG. Yeah. And, and then you basically, uh, y- you program the system, right? Um, and, you know, sometimes the artist will come by and say, yeah, this is great and so forth. Um, and then at that point, they'll either tear it down and move it to another place or the band will come in, they'll set up the band gear and stuff, and then they will start to rehearse the show. And that can sometimes take weeks, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether they figure out the lighting cues, the video cues, the artists and everything else, you know, comes in and performs the show. So it's ready by the time it goes out the door, it's ready for, for an audience. Right. Right. And so the rehearsals and things, you said that takes weeks, but mm-hmm. I'm guessing that could also take months depending upon the artists or not really because they're already s- uh, such professionals. Well, they've, they... they've also been rehearsing at the same time somewhere well, they're else. they're rehearsing. Okay, yeah, sure, you know, sure, There's sure, dancers sure. Yeah. and so forth, you know yeah. what I mean? They're working in the studio in the somewhere meantime, and then yeah, they elsewhere. come out to the sure. stage. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. So one question I have mm. about this, about, again, the production design is I'm curious... You know, we talked about that you're listening to the, the, the particular artist's music. You're looking at maybe their past, um, just them as artists again and what they represent and what they're trying to put out there. What about as a professional here, how much time do you spend looking at other groups, other acts to make sure? And do the artists do that? Does mm. Britney Spears say Christina Aguilera? Those are maybe bad examples. Or does Pink Floyd say Ozzy Osbourne? I mean... Are, is there a lot of, or are they all too busy? They're not really comparing no, I mean, notes. There, there's certainly some, a lot of times there's somebody goes like, you know, I've dealt with artists before. It goes, man, I saw this show. It looks so cool. This yeah. band, th- what they had was really neat. Can we do something? You know, it's, I mean, ideas get stolen all the time. Yeah. You know, there's no question about yeah. that. that you well, know. one example I was thinking of is mm-hmm. I remember when Cirque du Soleil started mm-hmm. and they had the performers that are, they're performing on those like ribbons that mm-hmm. are hanging from the ceiling and they're doing the acrobatics yeah. on those ribbons. And then I went and, a long time ago saw Cher and she had those people in her act. Yeah. Well then now a year or two later I saw Pink was doing that. That's she right. was one of the acrobats yeah. doing that yeah. actual and I just thought it's interesting how yeah the yeah. ideas kind of spread and yeah. get reused and they're all doing it maybe a little bit differently. Uh, but I was just curious, yeah, how much the artists are coming well, to Well there's always saying. one example that I always think about that that had an impact on me as well. Um, and that was in the late eighties back to Pink Floyd and they came out with this um, I think it was was the Delicate Sound of Thunder tour I think I, I can't remember but they had a circle truss um, and they had a screen in the middle and they projected on it but then they had lights all the way around and it was I just, remember that yeah actually. it was yeah. just one of those effects I just remember oh my god it's amazing and then you started seeing it all everywhere the, absolutely. Sure. and it's interesting too there are trends in, in tours as well where you know Somebody does something, and then you start to see it's like there's almost that kind of the joke sometimes, or like, oh, this year it's pods, or this year it's yeah. circles, yeah. or you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, so yeah. there really are trends, then. yeah, yeah, sure. What about the technology itself? Itself. So, we talked about AutoCAD and mm-hmm. Vector, something was Vector the, the Works. Yep. Vector Works. Um, 
you know, in, in just in general, software is always changing. Sure. So are you constantly having to, fair, fair to assume that you're constantly having to sort of upgrade your knowledge of the software oh, and keep up with the changes? Sure. And um, yeah. So what about the last question, I guess, specific to design? Is there anything that you've been dying to do from a design perspective for someone's show that you have yet to do? Ooh. Anything in particular, like, you know, like you mentioned a second ago, yeah, people flying through the air. I mean, yeah, that's been done. Yeah. But is there anything like that that you're, I, I, someday I want to be able to do X? And maybe there's not. I was just curious. Hmm. You know, that's funny. that I Because it, it, I've been sort of like veering a little bit away from the last three or four years. It, it's sort of been going towards the whole production management thing more. So Right, right. I'm trying to... So it's not necessarily... You're not thinking in those terms as much as you might have before. Not necessarily. Yeah. And that's just, I mean, the thing, the thing that I would probably say is this, I've always been this idea that I've wanted to try of like uh, having like a, a LED video wall uh-huh. and then making it look like trusses are coming through the wall with uh-huh. little screens, pieces of the LED wall on the ends of the trusses uh-huh. and trying something like that. Uh-huh. I, mean, I suppose that would be the last idea I was playing with. I mean, every now and then I'll, I'll All right. open so up the drafting program and start yeah. playing with rendering and stuff like yeah. that. Sure. Okay. All right. So you just mentioned, as I had mentioned previously, but that's a nice segue, that you have recently gone from, I don't know, has it been the past year or two? Or maybe uh, about longer four than years that? Ago. It's been four, four years five. already. Well, I did a little bit in the past, but more so. As uh, your main gig. Yeah. Uh, four-ish years ago, you went mm-hmm. from being primarily a production designer mm-hmm. to primarily production manager. Yeah. So how are those roles different? I mean, I assume there's a lot more responsibility being the production it's, manager. It's, it's a left brain, right brain thing in some okay. ways too. Um, because I think in design, you take the concept and then you sort of pass it on. Once you've done that concept aspect, you take it on. Now, production management, you're, you're a little bit more sort of like the, um, it's almost like a kind of like a, the central depot of like tr- tracks going through of information. Uh-huh. And it's basically your job to keep that information going to the different departments and connecting all of that. You yeah, know? yeah. That definitely plays a big role, you know. Yeah. So, what was was that transition like? Did you was that your goal? Did you set no. out as okay? I started as lighting, then I went Mm-mm. into design, and I want to be production manager. No, it was. Um, I mean, in some ways, you know, not only design. I've also worked as a uh, mass electrician. You know, I've uh, which which is basically taking the design and then taking it and making the rig happen, the lighting put together and being overseeing the, the design and making that a, a thing. You know, I've, I've started been a, a lighting, just a tech um, in that sense. So I've always been around it. Like I said, I've been on the road for a long time, so I've kind of seen it around. But I think probably, and this is shifting gears a little bit, but I, I'd say I'm in my late 40s now, and for a long time I was definitely in a place where I would try to control everything. I would try to be like, ah, this is where it's got to go and stuff like that. And I I really lately found myself just getting to a point of just like, I'm open to to whatever the the, the trip takes me. I'm really just excited. The life trip. The life trip, yeah. Okay, and so you find that that shift in attitude of kind of letting go and trusting a little more that there are Mm -hmm. greater forces at play here, you find that that works well with this with this new responsibility of, of being the manager? 100%. Because really? you, you have... Because it seems I've, like it would be the opposite, perhaps, You right? would. But, but what I've discovered from this is that you are now at a point where there's so much information, you know, especially with, uh, you know, I've been with Hall & Oates now, well, since 2003, and I started doing the production managing thing for them in about four years ago. And every year, 
in the last few years has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. More mm-hmm. crew, um, bigger production. Because they're having a renaissance, right? They are. I mean, they never went away, I don't think. No. They've always been around. They've That's always right. been touring. That's right. But it seems as if, I mean, I saw them at Outside Lands, I think mm-hmm. it was, a few years ago. Yeah. Two or three or four. I Again, I'm really bad with time. But... Um, and yeah, and there were the the age range yeah. of that of that audience was yeah. incredible, and it seemed as if the the younger generations have also discovered their music. The which parents makes sense. played it for them, when and they were the kids. parents played yeah. it, and yeah. it's still on that's right soft rock radio or whatever, mm-hmm. or whatever or eighties radio, mm-hmm. and it's great music. Yeah, most more importantly, I mean that's why yeah. it's great music is timeless. That's so right. so, but consequently, your job your productions are getting bigger and bigger. Yep. So continue with where you were. Yeah, so it, it's sort of like. You just have to be at a point where you you can't get caught into the, the whole like in the future kind of thing. You know, you can't get caught in 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 this sort of like oh my god, what's going to happen mode because you you will die is what I'm finding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. In the future, you yeah. will die. Yeah, That's yeah, a given. Right? Yep. yep. Um, but but you definitely find myself sort of just having to to be present in many ways, and it, it's taken that it's. The job has taught me, you know, to to be in that place. So ironically, having more to do, more yeah. responsibility, yeah. more visibility has forced you to be more zen, so more, to speak. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah otherwise, because otherwise you, yeah. would, you would break under the pressure, I think, I, is what you're saying. I would get an ulcer, for yeah. sure. Yeah. You know, and I don't want that. Right. And I don't want that for you either. No, thank you. No one deserves an ulcer. No, absolutely not. But tell me yeah. about the moment, because it seems as if it was a big shift in responsibility that Hollow Notes came to you and they said, hey because I'm sure there were other people on the staff that could have potentially done this job or they could have mm-hmm. brought someone in from sure. somewhere else. Sure. So when they came to you, and, and again, you weren't seeking this. It wasn't necessarily no. like some corporate thing where it was the next step, but they came to you and said, we want you to take this on. How did, how did that feel? Well, it, was, um, it took some time to consider it because... So you didn't say yes right away? No, I had to think about it. Because well, what happened was that um, I was out there as their, their line designer. Yeah. And... Um, at that point in time, the production manager was having some health issues. So, you know, and he was like off the road for a little bit. So who can cover? And I was, you know, it sort of became the thing like, okay, can you do it? It's like, sure, I'll, I'll fill, you know, I'll fill in. And like I said, I had some experience in it in the past. Right. It wasn't like, it was completely like, I've never done this before. Sure. And I've been, like I said, I've been around long enough to know how this whole thing operation works, you know? And um, slowly but surely, his uh, the person who was out there, his health issues just was like it was better for him to be off the road. Sure. And so, basically, that's when it became: Do you want to do this? So I was like, Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so, but not immediately. So, yeah, what was it, your hesitation? It was just sort of like you know, what 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 else do I want to do in, in in my life? You know, is this what again? It was almost like that force thing of like, is this really what I want to do? That kind of thing, you know. And it took some consideration because it is a shift. Yeah, is this what I want to do? And more and more so, it just became like an answer of like, look, I've been doing lights and production design for so long. It's time to shake it so up. I don't want to get to that point where I go stagnant. You know, to me, that's the most important thing in life. That is pure death right there not necessarily physically but mentally and i don't want that so spiritually yeah, yeah. did you did self-doubt come into play at all because it's so much oh, more responsibility oh for sure yeah because i i think also in my 30s well in my 20s i had an attitude of like i as i think a lot of people do i can conquer the world right sure you know fearless let's just go for it and then as i got into my 30s I started having some self-doubts and there, there were some factors in whether it was in my upbringing with, with my parents or, you know, other people around me. 
questioning who I really was as a person. You know sure. what I mean? And I kind of took that on. I thought that that was part of me. And, you know, you start to believe it. And before you know it, you're living this game that's not real anymore. Yeah. And that, that played a big role in me. And I had a lot of self-doubt, uh, you know, not a lot of confidence in myself. And I saw a lot of other designers and people in my business doing great. And I, I was literally beating myself up going, I can't do that. There's no way. And right. As I got into my 40s, it was actually a bit of a, a, bit of a health scare in some ways. Um, in my late 30s, I went to the doctor and I was borderline high blood pressure. And they're like, we got to put you on a, on a pill and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, was that for the rest of my life? Yep. And I was like, You're well, like I'm only in my 30s. Yeah. Okay, hang so on a minute. This, this isn't working. And so it's almost like you say that I've always had sort of a spiritual path in that sense, but that really took on. Mm-hmm. And, and I started to realize that, you know, all these patterns that we do as human beings and these messages that play just aren't real, you know. And so to that point, four years later, yep. you took the job, mm-hmm. you took the promotion, you took the, the more responsibility. Yep. How has getting out of your comfort zone and what you've learned and are learning, what's, what's come of that? It, it's Clearly for, it was the right decision, Absolutely, I'm 100%. Yeah. It's forced yeah. me to be present. Uh-huh. Plain and simple, it's forced me to be here now to just trust the right thing will happen. You know, and to also listen to 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 other people and not be scared to go, hey, I screwed up. Yeah. You know, uh, we need to fix this and talk about things when when things start to go wrong. I think that is you know? in any context, yeah, in any absolutely. whether again, whether it's corporate, whether it's yep. doing a radio show, whether it's doing hollow notes, um, you know, production mm-hmm. management. I think that's one of the biggest things yeah. that for whatever reason, I don't remember being taught that that was OK. I remember being taught to. Um, lie, you know, lie, not necessarily, yeah, and not yeah. necessarily explicitly yeah. taught to do that. Yeah, but the whole saving face and I'm lesser, or I should feel bad because I messed up. You know, and I just finally got to a point, like like you yeah. did, where I thought, you know what, when I mess up, because it's going to happen, yep. and because I am human, yep. I'm just going to say it. Yeah, and and it's so empowering to admit yeah. that, yeah. and not to worry about the ramifications, and just know because the ramifications are always going to be fine. That's right. It's much more difficult to go the other way and say, oh, you know, God, I hope Jesper doesn't realize what I've just done. Yeah. I'm going to try to sweep this under the rug and then I'm going to worry about it. And then if it does come back out later, I'm going to have to deal with the ramifications and it would have been. So yeah, yeah at that just point like, in just time, say it's like, it, just get it out and move on. And the effort that it would take to do that as opposed to just going, and you yet know that's what? what we do. Yeah. Now that's let's just fix do. it. Let's just fix it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's definitely an aspect too of, of, um, a friend of mine and I discussed this and it's like he owns he owns a few companies and stuff like that and he, what he says about like his employees is he says like first time okay it's a mistake let's figure it out you know absolutely second time is like okay we've been here before but let's not there's a lesson this. that was not learned yeah exactly and the third time now this is getting stupid you right, know right and, and I think that plays a big role and that puts back the responsibility in the people who are in, in any level working in that sense of going like you know this is for me to be present as well. This is for me to to pay attention to what I'm doing and not just go. I mean, in all honesty, I find somebody sweeping a floor, you know, put put love into doing that. Do as right. much as you can. Do right. the best you can with it, and put pride in it. It's amazing what happens when that when someone does that, as opposed to go, oh, I hate this, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I want to something you just said yeah. though. I want to put it in the context of what you do. Yeah. So if I make a mistake here on the radio show. Um, you know, no one's going to fire me. No one's mm-hmm. going to, you know, I'm just the one who suffers the, yeah. the mild humiliation and hopefully my listeners are forgiving and yeah. I, I move on and hopefully I don't do it next time. I am not responsible for a stadium full of people watching Hall & Oates right. or Tears for Fears or any of these other big name acts that, for whom you work. So there is nonetheless, 
you know, first of all, what can go wrong? I'm really curious what can go wrong in right. one of these productions because I'm curious how much of what you do is pre-programmed because it is there is so much technology involved and you're actually just sort of monitoring versus how much are you actually doing? So that's my first question, I guess. And then the mm-hmm. second part is the is that follow-up that I started sure. with, which is then how much can go wrong um, in, in one of these massive productions? Because right. there's so many pieces and yet when I've gone to these big shows, I don't know if I've ever seen a big mistake. That's not to say they weren't happening and I missed them, but again, even oh, that would it, be it an achievement. from time to time. But yeah, but let's, let's yeah. tell me if you could first, because I'm going to forget it otherwise, how much of it is pre-programmed versus you're actually doing something? It varies on yeah. the tour. Yeah. You know, uh, somebody like, for example, Britney or whatever, they're going to have a lot of tracks sure. that play automa- automatically. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, what's called time code, which is, you know, um, which is basically music trigger. The music triggers certain cues, and, and there's software to do that. So the lighting works with that. The video works with that, and so forth. You know, then you've got somebody like a jam band. You know, like um, Dave street, Matthews. Yeah, or, exactly. A lot of that is done. You know, you can't tell when the song is going to end or when it's going to change, and so forth. So that's run manually. You yeah, know, there, there's yeah. that level. But but as far as the day goes, I mean, one of the things I don't think we've touched on is sort of like how how a day progresses from a show from the time. It well, comes, that was my next. Yeah. Yeah. So, so give us that. Yeah. yeah. So, so basically, you know, the uh, the truck show up in the morning. Sure. Um, and you've got local stagehands. Uh, you've got what's called truck loaders. Um, with truck loaders, of course, are the ones that that uh, empty the trucks. Yeah. I was one of those at one point. Oh, there you go. In a distant past. Yep. All right. Yep. Um, and and then basically you've got the touring personnel. Uh-huh. You know, every department. Um, Generally, what will happen a lot of time is, um, and again, there's many variances on this, sure. right? Because there's the massive scale productions where, you know, there's um, the, the rigging of all the gear. They travel ahead to put it together. Because it takes so before, long. Yeah, exactly. Before the, and then there's the other ones that, you know, a couple of trucks that show up, you know, nine or ten o'clock in the morning and they, they put it in, you know. Um, but the general day is basically the trucks get unloaded. Um, and it's, it's always going to start with the rigging, with this sort of like the motors and the trusses. The motors, of course, attached to the beams. And those motors pick up the truss, which pick up the lights, which pick up the speakers, which pick up all the video equipment. And we'll have like a that. tutorial on my website there you go. for, yes, how that all works. <laughs> all right. Um, and then basically, next thing comes the lighting, because that's hanging above everybody else generally, sure. right? Um, and then a combination of either video uh, equipment or the audio, the speakers come in. Mm-hmm. And at that point in time, as that's being built and so forth, that's going in. Um, once the stage deck is a little bit clear, and sometimes you actually have stages at the other end of the arena that they're building because it takes too long to build everything else down the other end. So they're putting on the band gear and everything else on the stage. And then once all that stuff flies out, the stage rolls in underneath. Oh, wow. Specifically in arena situations. Yeah. Obviously, you can't do that in amphitheaters or theaters, right? Yeah. Um, but but so basically, once the stage deck is clear and stuff's blown up, then the band gear comes in, and you know the scenery, the scenery comes in, and so forth. Um, and then at that point in time, um, you'll start hearing some noise. You know the amps and all that stuff is set up. Sound uh, checks. Sound. Well, so you first thing you do is what's called a line check, which is basically the sound guys um, work with with the backline guys. Um, to, to make the song, make sure everything sounds good and so forth. So generally, depending on the time of the doors, depending on how many acts there are, um, but let's just say it's just a two-act show, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and let's say the doors open at seven, um, then you would probably see a sound check story around four, 
mm-hmm. four or five o'clock. And why is the sound check so important? I mean, because how much, I guess what I'm really implying mm-hmm. in that question is, because I get why you would need to make sure everything's working, that mm-hmm. I get. But I guess I'm curious, how much does the sound, because again, you've got everything, you've got everything you know the specs, mm-hmm. right? I want this level here and all that. I don't know what the language would be, the lingua would be. But you basically know where you want the different mics and the different sound things mm-hmm. to be. But how much does it then vary from venue to venue? Uh, because that's probably why you need to do these yeah, checks absolutely, partially, absolutely. right? Yeah. But you know, I mean, when it comes to sound, and you've got the, uh, the PA hanging out there, I mean, the tech, again, technology is getting amazing too, where it will balance the PA for you to, to, for the optimum, you literally tell the specifications of the room and it will go, okay, these are the angles of the speakers. These are the levels. This is what you want and so forth. Yeah. You crazy. know? Yeah. So there's that, but there's also what's called, and a lot of people always, uh, I think can't completely understand us, but less a monitor guy. Uh, monitor guy, monitor engineer uh-huh. and what he does is he's the guy who deals with the sound on the stage mm-hmm. that I'm hearing as the artist if I'm the yes, artist yes yeah. exactly and I mean you think about something like in the Beatles they didn't have that I mean literally right. it was literally just they, they couldn't hear themselves they just and that's why they stopped touring because they just you know, really yeah, apparently that's a big deal that's a big part of it it's just they got to a point where it was like who were we really playing for because it was just so loud so many screams oh, and everything they, and else. they couldn't and even hear what they were playing they, they, they just kind of were hoping to be playing along with each other you know hoping for the oh best many ways. I mean, I'm sure they could hear something but it yeah. was a very comfortable situation yeah so then we went to the monitors which are the speakers mm-hmm. and now everyone's got headsets in, so a lot of people have in-ears yeah. uh, but a lot of older artists don't like it they yeah. don't like to have in ears because they feel disconnected or, from the crowd. Uh, yeah, because it's like wearing headphones. That's right. Basically. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Um, so, so, and that's the specific reason. It's basically why the sound check is that their stage sound is good so that they walk on stage when there's an audience in front of them. They're not going like, oh my God, I can't. I can't hear. What's going on? Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. So that helps them in yeah. that sense. Um so yeah, that's, that's, that's a big part of it. And then obviously a lot of times too, if they, they want to work on a song, you know, from maybe the night before it didn't sound right or like let's change the ending or we're adding another song. Oh, sure, sure. Let's figure that out. Keeping things yeah. fresh or, yeah. or whatever. Absolutely. Okay, so going back to my, pre- my question mm-hmm. a little earlier then. So everything's set up. Mm-hmm. It's seven o'clock or now it's eight o'clock. Everyone's there. They're waiting for whomever to come on mm-hmm. stage, Pink Floyd or Hollow Notes. Uh, what can go wrong during the actual show? And what's the, and in general, but then give me an ex- ex- a specific example of kind of a horror story, if you have one, which you might not even have one. Um, but just in general, what could sure. go wrong? Well, I mean, a lot of the equipment these days, too, are designed for, um, f- for touring. You uh-huh. know, for traveling. So yeah. a lot of the stuff is, is pretty solid. Again, you know, if you're going out there and buying crappy gear, um, you know, chances are that gear is going to break. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, right. at, at some point. And you also have backup equipment, you know, for, for that situation. I mean, I, you know, I've had power losses before, uh-huh. you know, where we've had to stop. Um, Just stop the whole show. Stop the whole show. And, and, and that power loss was because of something outside of mm-hmm. the concert venue sure. or because you did I mean, the a lot of venues, things. they'll have generators, backup generators, stuff like that, immediately switch over so you never know. But yeah. some some places don't, you yeah. know. Um, I mean, I remember my early days of touring, especially when I toured to country music. You know, you go to some pretty odd places in the middle of West Virginia. You know what I mean? That uh, they're not necessarily wired. No, not really. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. they've and got th- someone with a crank or yeah, keeping yeah, it going. Hopefully, yeah. You know, yeah. the steam engines cranking up back there, stuff yeah. like that. You know, I've, I've been in situations before where you know, you, you've got generators. If it's a if it's a county fair or something like that, you know, you've got a generator right. running there, right, uh, in the back, and you know, they decide a generator to just be something that they use for construction, which is not really optimum for for lights and sound and stuff like that. You know, yeah. so th- there's things like that that yeah. happen, but 
I mean, really, the biggest thing that ever goes wrong is that that I've been a part of is just like I said, is power's a big one. Weather uh, can can cause things if it's an outdoor gig if, if it's not you know covered well enough. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, and, and sometimes you know, guitar amp breaks, uh, strings break, you know. Things happen. Things like that. But, yeah. but really, I mean, the people that are hired to, it's, it's sort of like, I guess you could, in a weird way, I guess it's kind of like a pilot. You know what I mean? The pilot, when he's flying a plane, there is plans for when something fails to, to fall onto something else. And if that doesn't work, what's your plan B? What's your plan C? And so forth. You so know, you just so have lots of contingency. You got to have contingencies for sure. Yeah. So uh, you feel very fortunate to still have the same joy in doing this 33 years later. Absolutely. And uh, can you see beyond this current gig, or is this still so? You're still so into this current know, situation. I don't know because now I'm at that point, like you know, with with this whole aspect, of this coming out, just going. I I trust the right thing will happen. What may what Kesaras yeah. yeah. and uh, yeah. yeah. So you are on tour this summer, though I believe. That's right. Uh, are you on tour right now? No, not right now. No, we're going okay. to uh, Nashville um, on Tuesday, and then we're going to start. We, we go into. Uh, there's a big rehearsal studio in Nashville that we're going into to program all the lights and so forth. And we'll yeah. be there for about uh, 12 days. Okay. And then yeah. how long is the tour? And is it just the States or is it The States, over? a couple of days in Canada. Okay. Yeah, three months. Three months. Mm-hmm. And then anything lined up after that or to uh, Not that I'm aware of at this point. Yeah. But, you know. yeah. Okay. And this is all, this is Hollow Notes again. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Jesper, this has been very interesting. Yeah. I've learned a lot about production design and management. Uh, so, uh, I, I mean, there's lots more that I would like to ask, but I think uh, I think we'll just close here with Hall & Oates is on tour all over the United States this summer, starting soon. And uh, if you liked, uh, if you check out Hall and & Oates and you like their stage show, uh, know that Jesper helped design it and manage it. And uh, if you're looking for someone to do that for you, post Hall & Oates upcoming tour. Jesper's website is jesperluth.com. And uh, thanks again, Jesper, for being on the show. Thanks, man. All right. It was fun. See you. I have a great episode next week. James Michael Dorsey will be on the show. James is an explorer, award-winning author, photographer, and lecturer who has traveled extensively in over uh, 48 countries. James' main pursuit, as I said earlier, has been, uh, in the past 15 years, has been visiting remote cultures, mostly in Asian Africa. So I will talk to him about those adventures and uh, his new book, Baboons for Lunch. And as I mentioned at the beginning of today's show, I'll also be talking with director of photography, writer and uh you know what this is last week's close <laughs> we just talked to bill i guess i didn't get to this part of my my planning that's what happens when you plan on an airplane coming back uh, from the other side of the country so yeah we already talked to bill uh next week who's on next week i'm gonna cheat here and go to my uh, calendar so no next week is james michael dorsey so that's the good news is i got that part right I will also have uh, two of the sisters from Brahma Kumaris on to talk to talk about meditation. And so that's what we'll be talking about in the second hour. So that is a favorite subject of mine. We touched on that a little bit here or uh, kind of indirectly with Jesper. So we'll talk about that with the uh, with the two sisters from Brahma Kumaris. Thank you for listening today. If you liked what you heard, please help me spread the word on my show page. You'll see many ways to share on social media. And if you see a post on Facebook for an upcoming show that sounds good, please share that. It all really helps, and I really appreciate it. For more about me, my website is matthewfelix.com and links to my social media, books, audiobooks, and other podcasts, including my new one, Porcelain Travels, which I mentioned I uh, just have a new episode out last week. Uh, And all the rest can be found there. Last but not least, if you have any comments, 
show ideas or just want to say hello, you can email me at felixonair at matthewfelix.com. Thanks again for tuning in. And until next time, have a great week.